welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast, which was recorded during NADOC week. I'm Gar O'Hara, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my feet are placed today, which are the Kaimai and Kanalgal people of the Eora Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This week, I'm joined by Laurie Joyce, Head of Security Compliance at the Australian Red Cross Lifeblood. We met recently on a cyber resilience panel discussion for healthcare. Laurie has had an interesting path to his current position. His degree is in fossil pollen analysis, but his career started with Vic Police doing intelligence analysis and cancer terrorism. He's been the CEO of Knox Basketball. He's done enterprise compliance and risk management across a number of organizations and now serves as head of security compliance for Red Cross Lifeblood. Laurie is also a member of the Reconciliation Action Plan Working Group, which was a happy coincidence as we recorded during NADOC week. In the episode, we talk about the nuances of healthcare, for example, the struggles with medical devices compliance and some of the changes coming from the TGA to help with cybersecurity. We talk about the challenges faced by healthcare organizations given their relatively unique position of holding highly sensitive personal health info and providing highly critical services. We go through the Red Cross breach, which is held up as an example of a good breach response. Laurie talks us through what that led to for the organization and the improvements that resulted. We finished the episode with Laurie's work in the Reconciliation Action Plan Working Group, and note that there is a brief mention of sexual violence near the end of the episode, so please be mindful of that if it would be upsetting for you. Over to the interview. Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilience podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and today I'm joined by Laurie Joyce, Head of Security Compliance over at Red Cross. How are you doing today, Laurie? Right, Gar, and thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure. And um, we got to connect on a healthcare panel recently where it was yourself, Rosemary Cooper, and Sidi Tim Rizé. And uh, I found the content really, really interesting, and I could see a little twinkle in your eyes. So I was kind of keen to get you, get you on to have a conversation. So thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Always a pleasure, mate. How's everything going uh, during COVID for you? Life uh, going okay? Yeah. Look, we, we've been working from home since March. Um, our workforce, 3,500 people around the country, many of them still on the front line in terms of collecting blood and blood products and, and of course, our scientists and, and our processing people in our manufacturing facilities are still working. But the vast majority of our um, admin staff, including myself, have been working from home for the last uh, six months. And, and, and like many uh, organisations, we face those really early challenges of being able to set up and um, make sure that our, our staff can work um, appropriately and, and um, efficiently from home. So there are a few challenges uh, in very early days, but uh, it's largely gone seamlessly. It's worked really well. That's uh, that's good to hear. So you're currently sitting as head of security compliance. Um, we always kind of start the conversation by just asking people how they got to where they are. And uh, I had a look through your LinkedIn profile. I have to say it's one of the most varied, broad set, sets of experience uh, I think I've seen for anyone who's been on the on the show, uh, it'd be lovely to hear your your journey, how you got to where you are. Yeah, you know that classic question about where do, where do you see yourself in five years' time? For we usually get thrown at you at any job interview. I would have been wrong each time. So um, uh, I, I'm <laughs> I've got a degree in palynology, that's fossil pollen analysis um, from Monash University. Um, uh, I sort of graduated back in. Uh, a recession in in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and couldn't really find a job in that that field. Or not surprisingly, there's not a lot of jobs for pollen analysts. Um, but um, ended up through uh, um, a series of uh, 
accidental um, uh, opportunity, I suppose, as, as a policeman. And uh, spent 16 years with Victoria Police, much of that with the Protective Security Division. So I was a hostage and we did a lot of close personal protection and, and um, from there moved into another section within that uh, division uh, called the Counter-Terrorist Explosive Information Service at the time. Um, so I spent um, uh, time there as a case officer and then was in charge of the intelligence analysis section of the, the counter-terrorist section. So um, got out, bought a business, business fell over, um, ended up uh, spent a lot of time on uh, basketball committees as my kids um, grew and um, got asked to be the uh, chief executive officer at Knox Basketball, which I, I did for six years, um, ended up being sacked. Uh, which is a whole, whole other story. But um, the interesting part of that was that a friend of mine um, uh, whose wife had been on the board there with me, uh, not at the time I was sacked, um, rang me and asked me whether he could help me out at all. And, and I said, well, I hadn't had to write a resume for a while. So um, we organised to meet a few days later and um, I walked in and he threw a job description at me and said, I've got this role going at the moment. He was the uh, chief operating officer on our Mikey project, our transport ticketing system here. Um, he said, I haven't been able to fill it, and I think you can do it. Um, have a look and see what you think. Um, lots of double Dutch there for me, uh, Gar. I, I didn't have a clue what ISO meant or um, any of that stuff, so I did a little bit of research and thought, yeah, I can have a crack at this. And um, they took a pun on me and, and, and employed me, and I was there for uh, a couple of years. Um, then went to a, a startup setting up a, a, a new data centre in Port Melbourne, and the money from that fell over. Uh, four months after I got there and, and um, an opportunity came up to uh, work at um, the blood service, now Lifeblood, um, and I've been there ever since, so coming up to 11 years next month. That's a, it's quite a long time to spend in a role these days, which is probably a good sign, you know, um, something, something's gone right there. Well, um, I, I count myself as lucky to have worked with organisations that, um, uh, if we talk about sort of a higher purpose, um, Victoria Police, uh, I, I love my time there, would wouldn't swap it for anything. Um, you know, I, I, we feel like there's, there's, there's a real um, purpose to what you do in terms of providing you know, safety and uh, for, for the community. Um, uh, Knox Basketball gives opportunities to uh, for, for kids and people to be involved in sport and, and team sport in particular, something I'm, I'm quite passionate about and, and love my time there as well. And and Lifeblood certainly has a higher purpose. What we do uh, automatically, uh, you know, has, has a lot to do with keeping people fit and healthy and and saving lives in lots of ways. So I'm really fortunate to work with three really great organisations from that point of view. Yeah, most definitely. And you've sort of covered it, I suppose, but like with that broad range of experience, was it really just you you were looking for jobs, you had to go kind of thing to get into security compliance or do you feel like there was something something in you that was kind of drawn to that as a, a career path and a specialty? Um, look, I think my, my time in the police force, uh, policing, and I had this discussion with some squad mates of mine, um, and uh, that's actually coming up in, uh, next week, uh, the anniversary of going into the police academy, which is 39 years ago now, back in 1981. So there's not too many of my squad mates that 50 hours that, that are left in the police force. Um, but when we get together, we talk about what opportunities are available for, for police members outside. Um, the one thing it teaches you really is to be able to communicate with people and, and people often in crisis at the time. So... You know, being able to uh, talk calmly and and, um, and and problem solve is really important, and it's important in security as as, as much as anything. So, um, 
whilst I didn't necessarily feel like I'm in the, my first three months on the Mikey project, I felt like an imposter. You know, I'd sit there in the corner and uh, uh, try and um, duck your head when someone asks you a question. Um, but I've never been afraid of saying, look, I, I don't have the answer I'll find out for you. And, and I think that's really important as well. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess I've, I've been fortunate to have been regarded as, as being a subject matter expert in a number of different areas now. Um, and that old thing about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, uh, people shouldn't pigeonhole themselves or think that that's the only thing they can ever do. Um, there's lots of opportunities out there if you you have, have a bit of a crack and if people are prepared to take a punt on you, like um, uh, the Mikey Project was with me at that time. Yeah, definitely. And, and maybe there's an opportunity to not grow up either, which I think has been my approach. You know, uh, what do I want to be when I grow up? I'm just not going to grow up and just pretend I'm 17 for the rest of my life. <laughs> Um, look, healthcare organizations in general, like you guys are in a fairly unique position, I would say, when it comes to cyber resilience. There's uh, there's nuance, there's things that are very specific about that as an operating environment. So like the data that you guys uh, store is particularly sensitive and the services that you're providing are, are extremely critical. Um, it's not like, I don't know, a retail store going down, which is not great, but it's, you know, if somebody can't buy a new pair of sneakers, it's not the end of the world. But if... Uh, blood products are not available. That's a big, big deal. You know that uh, that stuff. What are the? What do you see? Like some of the key challenges that you face in this kind of an environment? Well, you're you're right. Um, health information, obviously, on the on the dark market, is is far more lucrative than uh, non-health information. And and when you think about it, uh, it provides a platform for people to steal identities. You know, generally. You get um, all sorts of stuff associated with, it, including you know, dates of birth and 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 not the normal um, personally identifiable information. It's it's all got also lucrative from a, um, a targeting point of view. Uh, you know, I, I was speaking to people recently about uh, some situations in the US where uh, uh, people who are terminally ill have been specifically targeted by uh, unscrupulous people ringing up and saying, "Listen, um, we 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 know you've got this sort of condition or this type of cancer." Uh, we're doing a secret um, uh, trial on people. It'll cost you $100,000 to be involved um, and just pay us the money. And um, uh, knowing those people don't have a, uh, you know, if they're in stage four or worse, um, they've got a limited lifespan anyway. So they're sort of um, really easy to uh, exploit. Um, health industry traditionally also, um, because your, your prime focus is health, um, uh, security has become, uh, in, in lots of ways, uh, something that's been put on the back burner. Um, so, you know, if you've got a doctor with a patient open on the operating table who, who um, uh, needs needs um, a laptop next to him so he can view images of, of the areas operating on that have been taken previously, uh, uh, if that sort of stuff gets knocked out through ransomware or, or denial of service attacks and things like that, the, the, the consequences are enormous. People die. Um, so... Uh, you know, but the focus is on helping the patient, not necessarily on on an understanding that um, uh, if you've got good security, you're also helping the patient. Um, uh, you know, we we had a uh, data breach ourselves back in 2016. Um, uh, that was a bit of a wake up call for us, um, even though it was uh, it was a third party. That um, uh, do you want me to go in, in, into this in a little bit of detail? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great to hear about it. Um, we had a website donate blood. Uh, .com.au, which uh, at that time had some web forms on it. So if you wanted to make a, uh, an appointment to give blood or you wanted to check whether you were eligible to give blood or not, you filled in the web form, 
uh, triggered an email to our contact centre and they would call you back and, and discuss you know, how to make an appointment or whether you're eligible. You know, you might have had tattoos that made you ineligible for six months mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, unbeknownst to us at the time, uh, that was being collected in a database in the back end. Um, the management of that website was outsourced and they were setting up a new test environment for us and the guy who was setting that up um, took a copy of that database file and put it on a web-facing server, exposed it um, on the internet as opposed to being behind their firewalls on the database server where, where it was supposed to be. Um, now I keep saying a young bloke in the Netherlands, but I don't know whether he was young or whether he was a bloke or whether he was actually really in the Netherlands, but um, someone surfing the web for database files found that. Um, he contacted Troy Hunt from Have I Been Pwned uh, yep. fame, um, and Troy then spent the next uh, little time uh, verifying the database was real, found his, his own name and his wife's name who were blood donors on it, um, and then set about trying to contact us. So uh, in the end, there were 550,000 uh, unique records that were exposed, and some of those uh, contained phone numbers or email addresses or, or physical addresses, and, and we had to kick into full-blown, um, you know, incident management and crisis management um, uh, uh, time, um, you know, set up war rooms, um, work the problem through, and and then you know, the, these things have ongoing um, issues because uh, it, it doesn't end when the incident ends. There's, there's lots of other things that you need to follow up and ensure that uh, your systems are robust and you've got the right protections and controls in place so that hopefully it never happens again. Mm. And, and like on that, what were the things like post-breach, I'm guessing, and it might have actually been you who made the comment, but, you know, there's nothing like a breach to kind of get buy-in for change and sort of funding for security. Like how did that go post-breach? Because you mentioned there's a lot of kind of tidy up and, you know, it's not just, the, I suppose, the immediate remediation, but the longer term uh, implications from a resilience perspective and organizationally processes, like all of that stuff. Um I, I guess my first point is that um, it's not just a security issue at the time a breach occurs either. Um, yep. You know, we, we had two war rooms going so- simultaneously, uh, one within the ICT division that was actually working the problem, trying to um, find out what had happened, why it had happened, who else might have had access to the information that we didn't know about at that time. Um, and then there's the uh, executive team and the board that are that are working at it from a... Uh, uh, public uh, community relations um, point of view as well. So um, it's a multi multidiscipline team that's required to respond. Uh, communications experts, you know, we, we had to decide um, what we were going to tell people and when. Um, we didn't want to go uh, live with what had happened um, before we actually knew what had happened ourselves. Um, so it took us forty eight hours to actually uh, gather all that information together and then and then make the announcement that we had been breached. Um, so after, after that first week, though, uh, the board uh, set up a few reviews. So Ernst and Young, who are our internal auditors, um, uh, started a review of the incident itself and how we had responded to that. Um, PwC were brought in to um, look at a full end-to-end security review. So they looked at governance and um, processes and controls, uh, policies, uh, whether we had the right tool sets in place, the number of bums on seats. Um, uh, the Privacy Commissioner launched an investigation. Um, and at the end of all that process, we had around about 120 recommendations, many with multiple action points that we needed to address. Now, um, that's not to say that we were insecure at the time. It was to say that there was lots of room for improvement for the stuff. Yep. We, were, we, were, 
where we had gaps. Um, and anyone will have gaps. Um, it took us 18 months to work through those and resolve all of them. Um, and we didn't have the bums on seats to be able to do it either. I mean, um, up, up till a month prior to the incident, there was me. <laughs> we had one new, new bloke in security operations that arrived a month before. Yep. Um, so we, we had at, at, at a tight, we had around about 20 to 30 people working on the re- remediation actions. Um, and we, we closed the, all those off at a, at a rate of around two and a half or three per day. So after 18 months, everything was done. Um, and then the Y and PwC came back in and, and verified that um, uh, looking at the evidence that we had closed everything that they'd recommended uh, and done. And we also entered into an enforceable undertaking with the uh, Privacy Commissioner as well. And, and um, uh, whilst the, uh, the company that exposed the information um, copped a whack for exposing it, um, we copped a whack for two things. One, one was we kept information beyond its use-by date. Yep. So there was no need to keep that information in a database in the back end once the email had been sent. Um, uh, but it was just, you know, it had been building up for eight, eight to ten years. Um, and the second was on our uh, vendor management. So we had to set up a new system of uh, doing information security assessments on all our vendors that handle personally identifiable information on our behalf or have access to systems, which if breached might give someone access to that information. Um, so um, uh, we, we'd already had a security improvement program in place prior to the, that um, and had started to invest in things. We had a new uh, chief executive and a new chairman of the board that arrived six months prior to that as well, and both of them had, a, had a, an interest in security. Um, so we were starting to uh, get some more resources in terms of um, looking at what we, we needed to address. Um, and I guess like most of the people... Many people now are looking at um, uh, the fact that uh, you know tools aren't your first line of defence or, or your first um, control weakness either. It's it's your people. So we're, you're putting a huge emphasis on um, upskilling our people around how to recognise threats and, and how to respond to them if they see something happening. It's such a huge one, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'm going to actually ask you about that a little uh, a little later. I was keen to maybe drill into the idea of, um, I think in, in sort of data governance, you call it defensible defensible retention. You know, the idea of, I suppose there was, it felt like there was two psychologies when it came to data and probably you could almost split them US versus the rest of the world. And the US was, you know, burn it all, shred it all. And the less stuff you have, the less they can pin on you. And it felt like Europe and Australia were probably more around, look, can we just retain everything, you know, and that way we can prove you know, we were good to go and, and didn't do anything wrong. Um, but I think with regulation changes, PII, PHI, and just, I mean, just data in general, I think there's a better understanding of not storing stuff. You see that all the time, even in, in kind of retail websites where you just want to buy a, I don't know, um, just looking on my table, a pair of sunglasses. And for some reason, the store wants to know your date of birth and, you know, whether you're male, female or something else or, or whatever. And you think, well, like, how is that relevant? Um, you know, that over collection of data. Um, do you feel like that's that's changing now? I mean, obviously, regulations are pushing that, but, you know, is it being adopted and not necessarily from your organization, but just more broadly? Do you feel like there's a, a better approach to data retention? I think there's a huge education piece that's required because we're all bowerbirds, basically. We like to collect stuff and, you know, you, you do a download from a, a, a database and create a mailing list or, 
or um, you know a certain uh, segment of your your customer base or whatever uh, it gets stored in a spreadsheet on, on a file server somewhere and no one ever goes back to look at it again but it sits there uh, forever and until uh, someone might stumble across it inadvertently and, and um, you know people leave organizations and and their stuff sits on file servers that they've created and you know we're, we're not really good at cleaning stuff up after it's used by date um, I think we really do have to get better on on that um, it's way easier said than done um, mm. it's, it's it's an education piece and um, uh, I mean the first thing you have to do is know what you're holding and where it is uh, and, and that was one of the criticisms of us during the data breach as well. And we, we didn't know uh, that that database existed, let alone what was on it at the time. We had to rebuild it to work out what was what it, um, it had contained. So um, uh, we've still got a long way to go. Uh, yeah. Legislation will, will help. I mean, you know, the Privacy Act, privacy principles are you keep stuff for as long as you need it and no longer than that. Um, but really, uh, uh, there's still um, lots of carrot, not a lot of stick at the moment in, in terms of enforcement. So, uh, yeah. you know, when the London to a bridge, um, there'll be more data breaches. Um, there will be many of them as a result of silly errors, human error, uh, because people just click on bad links or, that, you know, they just don't recognise bad stuff when they see it. Yeah, it's it's the eternal problem, I think. You you kind of mentioned the, I suppose, shining a light on where the data lives. And I think, you know, part of what we talked about in the in the panel was the idea of shadow IT. And I think that's probably a part of that problem where, you know, little silos within an organization can spin up a platform, platform. potentially store, store information, information on that platform, platform you know, you know outside of the, the, the view of security and IT and compliance officers. Um, what's your thoughts on like how to, I don't know, air quotes, fix that problem or at least try and contain it a little bit? Well, I mean, you've got to start with policy. One of the things we did immediately was to um, say that if, if anyone wants to use a cloud service, a SaaS or whatever, that um, it needed the approval of the chief privacy officer, our chief information officer and the relevant executive director of the part of the organisation that was responsible for it. So... Um, we put in quite clear guidelines to people or a policy basically to, to people about what they needed to do. Um, that's been really successful, but um, you know we we uncovered in the first 12 months post-breach that um, there were around about, I think it was 120 odd organisations at that time that had information of ours that um, there was no central rep repository for because um, I mean, you touched on it before. It's really easy to go out and get a SAS now. You don't even need a corporate credit card in lots of mm. lots of cases. You can use Zoom for for no cost, or or um, you know Miro, or lots of other uh, collaboration platforms and things like that. Um, so you've got to educate again. It gets, gets back to education. So people are like, okay, well, um, you know, you, you can use these tools if you use them in in this way. Um, I, I think um, our remote working over the last six months too has told us that. Uh, people cry out for collaboration tools. So um, IT departments and organisations really need to get ahead of the game for that as well because um, if you don't supply the right tools to people, they'll go out and find something that's useful for them. Uh, if you give them a suite of stuff that um, uh, they can use, then they will use it. 100%. I think that was – we were talking about desire paths. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. The, you know, the, if you think of a park where you know the council builds a pathway – because they think that's where they want the people to walk. And then when you come back, you know, five years later, there's a, 
a kind of a dirt track etched into the lovely grass because people kind of see, well, the playground's there, the gate's here, I'm going to walk directly to it. Yeah. Um, and it's very much the same, uh, it feels like, in in sort of security and IT. And I, you made that point actually in the panel, and I totally agree. If you don't get ahead of it, people will just figure out a way to do it. You know, they've got a job to do and, and pressure to achieve outcomes or perform. They're going to figure out a way to do it. And if you're not part of the, God, it sounds like it's... A movie quote, but you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem <laughs> in a way. That's right. I mean, people like shortcuts as well. Um, I want things to be easy. Uh, you know, everything is at our fingertips these days, um, and in that ways, it makes makes life a lot easier. But from a security point of view, it can make things um, uh, challenging as well. Uh, you know, I mean, at some stage in in, in terms of data protection, uh, next five to ten years, we'll have a wrapper around every every. Uh, document and every email that we send that means that you'll be able to control it forever so if, if uh, someone on forward something they shouldn't um, it'll automatically be prevented from doing so but we're not quite there yet I know there's a few companies working in, in that space but I don't think we're quite there yet yeah it'll be I think there's interesting times ahead there there's a conversation kind of happening in the in the security world around that end-to-end -end kind of encryption and what that means for third-party security platforms where uh, you know, if you think about it, um, uh, well, an email or a document, really anything, if it's encrypted at one end, you know, the normal security play is, well, let's, uh, you know, analyze the thing as it goes along, whether that's a, you know, CASB or web or, you know, a, a security email gateway. If you can't analyze it, then you can't apply the security. And then you're, you're sort of reliant on those larger vendors, you know, and they're the service providers for whatever, you know, say email. They're this, I think that sort of monoculture it's, it, I don't know. Instinctively, that just feels like risky to me. Um, but I, you know, suppose I, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? There's a balance there. Yeah, well, maybe it's that uh, mythical blockchain that's going to provide the solution. Oh, sort of I, thing <laughs> have to uh, do a handoff and authentication that says yes, this person's allowed to have it, and that person's allowed to give it. Um, yeah, you'd hope so. There's got to be a tech technical uh, solution to be able to do both. You know, the sort of um, the encryption and, and control. But also the the security side of things, and actually, when when I think about your organization and others in healthcare, the idea of data leak prevention is obviously pretty important. You know, for PHI, I mean, in, in sort of medical organizations, the you know patient information of the the very sensitive stuff that could be going on for somebody, um, you know, as their reason for being in those kind of organizations or being a, a customer or patient. There's there's some pretty interesting things, I suppose, from a healthcare organization perspective when it comes to DLP. Like for you guys, what are what are your big considerations and do you have any things you do to manage that? Uh, yeah, look, we have DLP. If we, if we were starting, you know, I wouldn't. Um, it's, it's, it's a beast to try and write the rules that will pick up stuff that's meaningful. Yep. Um, you, you know, you get so many thousands of alerts in a, in a day with a DLP tool that... Um, you spend all your time trying to triage and work out what's important and what's not. Um, I, I, I think the move towards behavioural analysis uh, in recent years is probably mm -hmm. the way to go. So um, uh, if someone logs in from a, a spot they don't normally do so or they're a member of a, a um, you know, an AD group that doesn't normally have access to that particular type of uh, particular folder or type of information, then you raise an alert that way. Um, uh, I, th I think that's probably far better than trying to, uh, a rules-based um, analysis. I mean, it's the same with antivirus, isn't it? Um, 
uh, really good for stuff that's been seen before, not so good for stuff that's uh, un- unknown. Uh, used Donald Rumsfeld's all about unknown, unknown things, but um, which when I first saw that, I thought this guy's a, a goose. I don't understand what he's talking about, but um, you listen to it a, a few times, you actually do understand that he's, he was he was very perceptive and and uh, really applies in in lots of areas, particularly in the security and cyber security world. So. Um, being able to recognise stuff that, that that goes somewhere that it doesn't normally go, or is used by someone who doesn't normally use it, um, is probably the best way to uh, protect it. I think. Um, and we always talk about security in depth. Um, uh, the the crooks are always one step ahead. They always have been. Uh, you know, I mean, castle walls worked until you had aircraft or uh, or uh, artillery that could lob shells in the in inside the keep. Um, uh, and then you've got to work out some some different ways. Well, we don't have castle walls around cities anymore because they're, they're particularly useless in in modern warfare. But um, the same uh, an analogy I often use is that um, back in my early days in the police force in the 1980s, um, there were bank robberies here in Melbourne every day, armed robberies on banks. Um, the banks responded by um, you know putting armed security guards out the front and the flyway screens up to protect the tellers and things like that. The armed robberies didn't start. They just moved to the next easiest target, which happened to be uh, uh, service stations and 7-Elevens and stuff at the time. So um, you you got to you, you don't necessarily have to be the fastest runner when you're being chased by a bear in the woods. You've just got to be the second slowest. Um, and it's the same with security. You, you've got to um, harden stuff as much as you possibly can. Um, the balancing part of it is uh, making sure that people can still do their job. In the health industry, Doctors still need access to patient information. With with us, uh, our donors still um, have the right to access their uh, their blood test results and all those other things that we do the, with them as well. You can't just put up walls and say no, no one's going to do anything. Yep. Um, so it's it's a matter of being able to control the stuff and make sure it gets to the right person at the right time when they need it. No, definitely get you. So I wanted to ask you about the legacy devices. This is something that um, the panel raised as well on that uh, the, the healthcare panel a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was particularly interesting. Um, so it's the idea of medical devices and how they're rated as compliant from the TGA. And th- I think it was raised that if you changed or up- updated the the OS or the, the security software on these devices, that actually they then become non-compliant, which has obviously yes. big implications to medical organizations or healthcare organizations. Um, can you can you walk us through that? I think that's particularly interesting, and and what the risk is there. It's probably pretty obvious, but um, you know, how does it play out in practical terms? Yeah, well, um, medical devices often have a very long shelf life. Um, they're 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 expensive. They're they're very complicated. So when you invest in them, you need them to be around for um, a long period of time. Um, so you get your return on investment. And, um, uh, so. Uh, Often that means that you are left with, excuse me, <coughs> with legacy uh, operating systems that can't be patched anymore. Uh, you know, we had a lot of XP devices uh, across our network, and even a Windows 3.11 device, uh, which which has been decommissioned over the last couple of years. But um, there's a long lead time to getting these in place in the first instance, and, and then maintaining them uh, is critical. So. They are a major issue for health organisations uh, in terms of being able to protect them and make sure they are patched and and that um, uh, potential breaches are kept uh, to, to a minimum when and where you can. Um, the TGA is uh, 
uh, in the process of releasing new guidelines that says that um, the system will only remain validated if it is patched. And that'll make a huge difference. Um, yep. Whereas in the past, they said, okay, that this particular device is validated to uh, Windows XP and, and therefore if you make any changes to it, you've got to revalidate. And validation's not only um, uh, expensive, it's very complicated as well for, for those types of things. And again, you want to make sure that the, the device is um, uh, delivering what it should be. Okay, it could be, uh, you know, blood test results in, in our case, for example, and you, you want to make sure that they're, that they're right. Because if they're wrong, again, the potential is that um, people can get quite quite ill and uh, potentially die. Uh, very rare events, obviously, but um, it is a potential outcome of, of um, uh, having those sort of results scrambled. So um, TGA new guidelines, um, if we get to the stage where the, the manufacturers are forced to maintain them, that, that, that's a great thing. Um, uh, and again, I mean, the... The only way to really protect yourself is to ring fence them as much as possible. So, mm. um, you know, um, make sure that your your communication is either monodirectional or bidirectional, but lock down the specific IP addresses, or you've got the right controls in place to um, to, to alert in the event that they are fiddled with by anyone uh, that shouldn't have access to them. Yeah, it sounds a problem like- for uh, healthcare industry across the board. Yeah, it does sound enormous, and you kind of wonder with like where my brain goes and that sort of stuff is who who absorbs the costs. Then um, you know, obviously, it gets pushed back to the manufacturer to uh, make sure that they stay compliant. But as you said, I mean, that's presumably quite an expensive process. And then, do the machines become more expensive? And then, uh, you know, does healthcare become more expensive as a result of that as well? Yeah, yeah well, maybe the validation is pushed back to the manufacturer. So. Um, rather than each organisation that sets a machine up and then has to validate internally, so yep. you know, um, uh, which which happens to a degree, but you've also got to make sure that your own test environments and everything you do uh, mirror the the uh, the actual validated environment that you're able to operate in. Uh, that's where it becomes complicated and, and problematic in lots of ways. So, um, look, I think um, I think things are changing, and I think they'll get better over the next few years. Uh, long lead time with a lot of this stuff, though. You know, you know, some of them might have a shelf life, uh, an operating life of you know, 10, 15, 20 years in some cases. Yep. Uh, hugely expensive to upgrade and replace. Yeah, you know, I get it. Um, we've mentioned cyber awareness uh, a few times now as we've kind of talked, you know, the don't get people to not click on links and, you know, follow, follow policy. And, and there's probably an element of, uh, Awareness when it comes to even things like DLP. What what's your approach to this stuff? Um, and is there anything that's maybe different or nuanced when it comes to healthcare organisations when it comes to cybersecurity awareness? I think I think there's a couple of things um, that we need to get better at as well. I mean, everyone's got a compliance aspect to it. You know, um, you, you do your online training once a year that says that you. You've done um, information security awareness training or privacy awareness training or, or whatever it happens to be, workplace health and safety, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but with those sort of um, click and move to the next slide type things uh, also have a shelf life. People get bored with them. They say, oh, I did this 12 months ago. Um, what do I have to do it again? You, you know, click, click through to the end without actually uh, getting any real value out of it. So the challenge is making it interesting for people too, um, particularly in a world where there's lots of other competing um, 
uh, you know, uh, needs on their attention as well. So um, we are and, and have done over the last 18 months uh, run quarterly campaigns about specific things that um, they should be looking out for, whether it's fishing or whether it's social engineering or um, uh, big emphasis on cyber safety at home. Yep. Um, uh, even more so now that people are working from home, um, it's important for people to understand that uh, um, what you do at home follows you through to the workplace as well. So bad habits there can reflect on bad habits in the workplace. Um, uh, threats that you might think only happen at work can also happen at home. Um, you know, fishing and, and, and those sorts of things uh, where you might not necessarily have the, the protections that the organisation gives you um, in, in the enterprise. Um, uh, you've got to make it fun and interesting. Um, you know, we're, we're running uh, real, uh, regular sort of brown bag sessions with a, a specific um, uh, topic. Um, uh, Brian Hay is a partner of ours who's, who's great at talking through um, some of those things with people uh, in, in, in sometimes uh, scaring them, um, but, but it's all about um, having people recognise where the threats might come from. Um, and threats change all the time as well. Mm. So you know, if you expect uh, the same um, security awareness package that you've been giving people for five years to be relevant and you're fooling yourself, you really should be looking at the things that are, um, are relevant to your organisation. You know, what what are our critical assets? Um, why would people want them? Um, we touched very early on, and uh, I think you mentioned storytelling. Storytelling is really important. So. We've we've had people whose uh, family members have have, have um, uh, been caught in various scams, tax office scams and other things. Uh, just do short, sharp, uh, three four minute talks to tell people about what happened to them and their family and what the impacts of that were, um, and and that makes it more real. Um, instead of me sitting there as a, the security guy preaching about stuff, uh, they're actually having uh, a chance to listen to their peers that have been been caught up in stuff that's actually cost them money or, or uh, you know, time and effort to uh, repair it. Um, so storytelling is really important. Um, identifying cyber champions across the organisation, uh, people yep. that, that have an interest that don't necessarily work in, in uh, uh, security um, and hopefully amplifying the message through them. Um, not so much sitting around the kitchen table now because uh, not many of us are doing that at, at the moment, but... Um, uh, being able to amplify the message and, and um, spread it more broadly uh, is is important as well. Um, and we're not, we're not alone in that. There's lots of organisations that are going down that path, um, many uh, way further ahead than what we are. Um, uh, but I think you need to under, understand the threats, um, uh, put things out, um, vary them, make them interesting, gamify them if you can. Everyone loves a good game. <laughs> so, yeah, no, definitely agree. Yeah. Um, and and I, I completely echo the idea of having evangelists or supporters in other departments that are non-tech because yeah. I think that's probably one of our biggest failings is that, you know, we we sort of shed off the cliff uh, often, you know, and there's no one really listening because it's it's just security or it's IT or, or whoever it is that's doing that kind of function. Um, but when you start hearing that messaging coming from uh, other functions, HR, finance, you know, operations, all of a sudden it just becomes much more real and um, yeah, I love the idea of storytelling to to make it really real. You know, it's it's not academic. Here's an example of a thing that might happen. You know, yeah. it's it's actually Alice or Bob, and 
this this is their story, and so that's powerful. Yeah, look, we've we've had staff members whose family have been ripped off in uh, real estate scams, and um, mm. you know others uh, have, have responded to the tax office threats that come over the phone. Give mm. me credit card and pay this now, otherwise you'll be arrested and dragged out and sent in jail. And, and um, uh, th- there's also a challenge for uh, you know small and medium enterprises as well who don't have the resources of big organisations. Yep. You know what what do they do? Um, I, I think the Australian government through the Australian cybersecurity centres and the, and the joint cybersecurity centres around the country are doing their best to do that, but being able to get the message out to those small and medium enterprises and, and, and offer them support is a challenge for us as a country too because, um, uh, you know, I, um, if, if you look at some of the attacks that have occurred on critical infrastructure in the States in particular over the last four or five years, um, many of those breaches have, uh, have occurred through third parties. So the big telecommunications or electricity companies and things like that have a have a raft of and a wealth of personnel um, protecting their systems. Um, but the people they let in to um, you know, support them may not have that same degree of protection or resources available to them. So the uh, nation states in particular are really good at um, understanding who the support people are uh, and, and attacking uh, organisations and enterprises through those support people rather than try and go directly in the front door. Yeah, and I think there's an opportunity nationally. It's part of the uh, the strategy document that came out earlier in the year. Um, but, you know, they call it that sort of small to medium enterprise space yeah. and, you know, the, the work that needs to be done there. And I, I agree, like we, we all kind of rest on them in a way, you know, they're suppliers into the larger organisations. It doesn't matter what size you are they're part of the ecosystem if they get popped it's going to affect you know more organizations than just them um so it feels like a good a good place to invest is you know how do we kind of lift that that space when it comes to cybersecurity? not just i suppose i mean certainly in the awareness side but probably the technology side as well is there ways to you know offer things at scale where they could take advantage of the the things that have traditionally only been available to those larger enterprises or organizations um yeah, hopefully we get there. Um, hopefully we get there. Um, conscious of of time, I did want to finish out with um, what I think is a, a, an important question and probably a little bit different from the general cyber resilience stuff that we've been talking about. It is uh, NADOC week uh, this week, um, which is just a happy coincidence, um, interestingly. Um, but you're actually a member of the Reconciliation Action Plan Working Group um, over in, in your organization at the moment. Um, and like for me, that seems important from a societal resilience level. You know, kind of acknowledging and working to reconcile problems of the past. Can you do you mind talking us through that that sort of that work and what you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. And it was remiss of me not to mention the fact that I'm currently sitting on Bunurong land. So I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and and to uh, First Nations people around the country as well, uh, particularly in Nate Week. Um, Reconciliation action plans are a way of, of um, um, recognising and promoting issues around reconciliation uh, across the country. Um, it's quite a formalised process. There are a number of different levels of wraps that um, uh, uh, you, you work through over a period of time and, and there's stepping stones that, that are built on, upon one, one upon the other. Um, basically provide a framework uh, to support the national reconciliation effort. Um, And, I mean, there's five pillars to that. One is on um, race relations, uh, equality and equity, um, institutional integrity, 
community and historical acceptance. Um, uh, you know, we, we uh, I, I hesitate to call Australia a racist com- country because I don't think we necessarily are, but um, there are elements of, um, of racism and there's certainly a lack of recognition of some of the inequities um, between um, Aboriginal and non- non-Aboriginal people around the country as well. I mean, um, if my family uh, were going to die 10 years earlier than, than the uh, broader population or or uh, 15-year-old um, uh, children, grandchildren, um, and nieces and nephews were, were five times more likely to commit suicide than others and, and um, uh, you know, they're three times more likely to have diabetes or, or um, you know, issues with uh, alcohol and drug dependence and, and family violence than, than other parts of the organisation. I'll be jumping up and down about it, and that's, that's some of the things that um, we don't hear enough about. Um, uh, personally, um, uh, we, we touched on this before we went went to air, but um, um, my great-great-grandmother was Aboriginal. Um, when I asked my grandmother about that, she said, shut up, don't ask questions you might not like the answer to. And I sort of, um, that, that, that comment saddens me now as I think about it, um, but I sort of understand it in the context of uh, when and where she grew up. Um, so I found out um, from uh, a cousin of hers, Uncle Charlie, who was 85 at the time, I said to him, what can you tell me about this um, black blood we had in the family? And he said, all I can tell you is I was around four or five years old when my uh, my mum took me to meet my grandmother for the first time in Shepparton. And I looked up and I said, oh, mum, look at that big black woman. And he said, she clipped me across the ear and said, shut up, that's your grandmother. So that was um, the first uh, confirmation I'd had of someone who'd physically met my, my, my great-great-grandmother. She, um, her mum died in childbirth. Um, and when she was a few hours old, she was taken and raised by a missionary couple who brought her back to Melbourne at the time. Um, and the second confirmation point was we found a newspaper article from 1862 which talked about the rape of a 12-year-old girl, and that 12-year-old girl was my, my great-grandmother. Um, and uh, then I had my DNA tested, and um, my mitochondrial DNA, which is the DNA passed down from mother to child is, is Aboriginal. So that's a direct line of descent through through my mum's 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 mum um, is Aboriginal. So I, I have a personal interest in, in this. Um, I don't identify as Aboriginal. I'm very proud to have Aboriginal heritage. I think it's a great shame that um, you know most people don't know much about it. You know, um, they were the first mariners. The, the only way they could get here to this continent was by boat. Um, the oldest artwork on the planet is found in in, in the Kimberley and the Pilbara regions. Um, you know, we've we've all seen those photographs of the LaSalle caves and the beautiful uh, paintings by uh, cavemen in inverted commas of, of uh, you know, woolly mammoths and and reindeer and stuff. That's sort of ten or twelve thousand years old. The artwork here is uh, somewhere between forty five and sixty thousand years old. So um, we should be celebrating those sorts of uh, things of the oldest uh, living culture on the planet. Um, it's still here now, and there's lots of um, inequities and inequalities that we should be addressing as much and, and, and as passionately as we can. We failed to date, and we need to do something better. Agreed, agreed. Um, and I do, I genuinely do think it's part of uh, societal resilience. You know, you, you sort of have to, in my opinion, uh, just acknowledge that stuff um, as much as you can reconcile with it. And then, you know, ideally everyone kind of moves, moves forward together in a, um, a more congruent way is maybe a, a way I would think about it. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know whether you've ever looked at the Milky Way and, and um, we tend to look at the stars and the bright points of light there, but there's a big dark spot that um, Aboriginals call the dark emu. Um, and there's all sorts of tales around around that. Um, uh, I saw it for the first time on a trip to Larue um, probably 10, 12 years ago. I never, never knew about it or seen it before. But I find it really interesting that um, uh, in non-Indigenous culture, we tend to talk about the constellations and those bright points of light. And in Aboriginal culture, they see the dark spots between, and the, and there's truth in the dark spots as much as there is in the in the points of light as well. And we just need to look for them. Um, we've we've touched on storytelling a number of times uh, through here, and, and it's really really important to um, be able to listen and, and actually hear what people are saying. Uh, um, uh, lots of people still hurt, so it's not. Um, uh, because of the way they've been treated over a long period of time, and um, I'd urge everyone to look at the Adam Goods documentary and 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 see what that's about, and and look at it with an open mind and open heart. Try and understand, put yourself in someone else's shoes, and understand what they're feeling um, when they hear disparaging comments or, or belittling or just dismissive comments about uh, you know it's not important. It is important. It is important. You know, um, again, uh, off. Off uh, recording, we, we touched on uh, events in the US and um, anytime we marginalise people, uh, society's got issues that uh, are, are deeper beyond just that surface sort of scratching stuff. Um, we, we need to uncover those and shine a light on them and talk about them openly and honestly, um, irrespective of where you are on the planet or, or where you are around the country. I, I totally, totally agree, um, and I think it's it's probably where we where we end the the conversation today because I think it's uh, wise words and probably stuff that hopefully people can reflect on and, and have a think about, especially given uh, given that it is uh, NADOC week this week. So um, yeah, Laurie, uh, really appreciate you taking the time out today. Um, really enjoyed the conversation, and as you said, we 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 talked for about twenty five minutes before we started recording. I think it's probably. Uh, our Irish heritage kicking in there and inability to not have a have a yarn. So, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you know, thank you so much for taking the time and, and sort of talking us through both the cyber resilience stuff, but also the um, you know your work as part of the the um, reconciliation action plan working group as well. So, thank you. Thank you, Guy. Appreciate the time. Big thanks again to Laurie for the conversation. Truly a pleasure to speak with him. As always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. We do have that back catalog of episodes, so please have a listen to those. For now, I look forward to catching you on the next episode.